Good morning. It is wonderful to join you for worship this morning. Yesterday, I had the pleasure of spending uh, lunchtime and the rest of the afternoon with the vestry. It's a joy to, it was a joy to be with them, to pray with them, to take counsel together, to hear the things that God has been doing here at King of Kings, the call that God has on you for next steps. It's also a joy to be able to be with Joel, Paul, um, dear brothers in Christ, and I pray that you pray for them regularly, that you encourage them, and especially in the next steps that you'll be taking together as a church. Um, as I spent time with the vestry yesterday, they described their time of, of seeking God for the future of King of Kings, spoke of the the long search that has gone on, wondering about new locations, spoke of the sense of call to see this church find herself in a new location, um, perhaps even southeast Charlotte. But what kind of just leapt off the page for me yesterday in our time together was the acknowledgement that this wouldn't be a mere relocation. This would be a, a replanting, a restarting, if you would. And that above all the things that it would take to, to do this work, as I last night uh, was praying over the message, quite frankly, this is not the lectionary passage. The lectionary passage is from John chapter 12. Those of you who are on top of things like that, you probably thought, why are they reading Mark 2? But as I prayed about what we discussed yesterday, thinking about this next season that you're going to enter as a church family, one thing stood clear. To do what God is calling you to do is going to require you to have a passion for bringing people into the presence of Christ. And so as I prayed about that, that's how the Lord led me to Mark 2. It's a great story about just that. A handful of people who had a passion to bring their friend into the presence of Christ. And so as we turn our attention to that story, if you have the, a copy of the scriptures, great, go back to Mark chapter two. If not, we'll look at a few passages from it. But as we dive into the scriptures, would you please pray with me? Grant, Lord God, that my message and my speech might not be in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of your spirit and of your power, that our faith might not rest on the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what does it take? What does it take to have a passion for bringing others into the presence of Christ? As we look at this story in Mark chapter 2, there are a few things that leap off the page. In fact, there are four in particular that struck me. You see, if, if you and I are going to be the kind of people who really have a keen desire to see people come into Christ's presence, then surely these four people who carried their friend who was a paralytic, carrying him on a mat to get him into the presence of Jesus, not knowing exactly what Jesus would do, but knowing that Jesus would do something. Well, the first thing that you see is they care. They care for their friend. But it's not just that they cared. 
You see, if you're going to have a passion for bringing people to the presence of Christ, you have to care enough to act. It's like an old saying, uh, John Maxwell, a Christian speaker and author, is the one who's attributed this phrase, but he didn't say it. Teddy Roosevelt said it. And it goes like this. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. That's right. And you have to care enough to act. If you look at the story in Mark chapter 2, you see Mark setting the scene. It's in Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee. The word has been spread. Jesus is taught as he's there. In chapter 1, it records his baptism, his temptation, the beginning of his ministry of proclamation. There's healing. There's casting out of demons. People are coming from everywhere to hear and to see Jesus. And he was there in this house that was so crowded that the room where he was was full to the doorway and then out into the courtyard. Scholars estimate that means there were some 50 people probably just inside the house. And then in verse 3, we read this. And they came. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Now nothing in the text tells us anything about how long this man was paralyzed. But what we do know in the text is that somebody cared. And they cared enough to act. You see, caring is important, but it's even more important that we care enough, enough to do something. We may say we care about our neighbors, but what do we do? We may say we care about certain people groups, but what do we do? We may say that we care about our friends, but what do we do? 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, John writes this, By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You have to care enough to act. Came across a story not long ago of a missionary, a guy named Doug Nichols. He tells the story of one of his missionary experiences in India. He writes, while serving with Operation Mobilization in India back in 1967, tuberculosis forced me into a sanitarium for several months. I didn't yet speak the language, but I tried to give Christian literature written in their language to the patients, to the doctors, the nurses, and everyone politely refused. The first few nights I woke around 2 a.m., he wrote, coughing. One morning during my coughing spell, I noticed one of the older and sicker patients across the aisle trying to get out of bed. He would sit up on the edge of the bed and try to stand, but in his weakness would just fall back on the bed. He said, I didn't understand what he was trying to do. He finally fell back into the bed, absolutely exhausted. And then I heard him cry weakly. The next morning, I realized what a man had been trying to do. He'd been trying to get up and walk to the bathroom. And I knew it because of the stench in our ward. It was awful. Other patients would yell insults at the man. Angry nurses moved him roughly from side to side as they cleaned up the mess. One nurse actually slapped him. The old man curled up in a ball and he wept. 
the next night I woke up again coughing and I noticed the man across the aisle sit up and again try to stand like the night before. He fell back whimpering. Nickel says, I don't like bad smells, and I didn't want to become involved, but I got up out of my bed, went over to him, and when I touched his shoulder, his eyes opened wide, wide with fear. And so I smiled and put my arms under him and picked him up. He was very light due to his old age and his advanced tuberculosis. I carried him to the washroom, which was just as filthy, a small room with a simple hole in the floor. I stood behind him with my arms under his armpits as he took care of himself. And after he finished, I picked him back up, carried him back to his bed. And as I laid him down, he kissed me on the cheek and he smiled and he said something that I couldn't understand. The next morning, another patient woke me up and handed me a steaming cup of tea. He motioned with his hands. He wanted one of the tracks that I'd been giving out days before. And as the sun rose, other patients approached and indicated they wanted the booklets. I tried to distribute them before. Nobody wanted them. Now everybody wanted them. Throughout the day, nurses, interns, and doctors asked for literature. Weeks later, an evangelist who spoke their language visited me. And as he talked to others, he discovered that several had put their trust in Christ as Savior as a result of reading the literature. And what did it take? To reach these people with the gospel it wasn't health the ability to speak their language or persuasive talk i simply took a man to the bathroom you have to care enough to act these four men did and they took their friend to the house but there you see something else about them you have to know it's a matter of life and death these relationships we have to people, have with people, and we have to see it as a matter of life and death. We get so confused about this as contemporary Christians. If you ask the average person to hold up a Bible and say, "What do you know the plot of this book? Do you know what most people say? Most people say, well, it's about good and bad behavior. It's about do's and don'ts and oughts and shoulds and rights and wrongs, right? That's the Bible. I mean, don't get me wrong. The Bible's got plenty of thou shalt's and thou shalt not's. But that's not the point. That's not the plot. That's not what the story is about. It's not good and bad, and right and wrong. It's life and death. You go back to the very beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, we hear a reference to two trees. One is the, a tree that they're not supposed to touch, they're not supposed to eat of the fruit of it. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God is so clear, He says, eat of it and you'll have horrible morals. No. Eat of it and you'll die. There's another tree in the garden. It's called the, garden, the, the tree of life. And what's implied in it is, eat of that and you'll, what, have good moral behavior? No. You'll live. Fast forward, if you would, to the book of Deuteronomy, where Moses, having read the entire law to the people, he then challenges them by saying, I have set before you this day good ethical behavior and bad ethical behavior. No. Life and death. 
And he calls them, choose life. Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, he says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to what? Bad morals? No, destruction. For the gate is narrow and the wet heart is the way that leads to life. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I've come that you can have life and life abundantly. You see, if we look at Christianity, if we look at the Bible, if we look at discipleship, any relationship with God merely in terms of appearance or behavior, well, there are going to be many people that you and I are never motivated to bring into the presence of Christ. Why? Because they seem fine to us. In fact, if we're going to judge it on moral behavior, they're doing a lot better than I am. But that's not the point. You have to see it as a matter of life and death. Seeing people as either connected to Christ who is life or not. Because when you do, when you see it that way, it creates an urgency. In February of 2017, I suffered a massive heart attack. A widow maker, I was told by the doctor who was about to insert a, st a stent once I got to the emergency room. But in the beginning, I just felt a little uncomfortable. Teresa and I were at the beach, we're in, in, in Georgetown County, and, and I just didn't feel quite right. So I went to stretch out on the bed to try to get comfortable. We were out taking a walk, we came back in. I couldn't get comfortable. One thing led to another, and soon I realized through this series of symptoms, I think I might be having a heart attack. Now, I didn't blurt that out to Teresa. I didn't want to alarm her. You probably ought to alarm somebody when you feel like you're having a heart attack, by the way. Eventually, she got the message from me. I, I, I'm in trouble. So we got into the car knowing that we could get to a hospital faster than an ambulance can get to us and get to a hospital. And as she realized the seriousness of it, as she drove me to the hospital, she put her foot to the floor on the gas pedal. She turned her flashers on in the car. The horn was honking. She was speeding, weaving in and out of traffic, waving her hand, speaking to people, get out of the way, get out of the way. None of them heard her, but get out of the way, get out of the way. She was filled with urgency. Why? Because now it was no longer about me being a little uncomfortable. Now it was about life and death. The question is, do we see it that way? When we see people disconnected from God, disconnected from Christ, do we simply look at it in terms of mere morality? Or do we see it as it really is? A matter of life and death. John 3.16, so familiar to us. So God so loved the world that he gave his own begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. But this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. And whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. You have to see it as a matter of life and death. 
The third thing you see with them is you have to be willing to challenge the ordinary. You have to be willing to challenge the conventions of men in order to reach the presence of Christ sometimes. These four guys, they get to the door and there's no way in. They're carrying their friend, but they can't even get through the doorway. There's so many people there. And even if they could, then to somehow get through the mob to where Jesus was, if they're going to get this man into the presence of Christ, where they have to be willing to challenge the ordinary. How many of you know this? There are always going to be obstacles. There are always going to be impediments to getting people into the presence of Christ. I mean, just getting people to come to church. Well, the cat got sick. I had to work late. I got sick. I broke up with my girlfriend. All kinds of things can happen. You have to push through. You have to be willing to try something new, to persevere, to get creative, to challenge old ways, ways that don't work anymore. It's exactly what you're doing. By taking a huge step to say, as the opportunity opens, we're gonna to move to the Southeast Charlotte. And we're gonna push through obstacles in order to find a way to bring even more people into the presence of Christ. And lastly, once you do, once you get someone there, to have a passion for bringing people into the presence of Christ, we have to trust that once you get them there, Jesus is going to do something. They expected Jesus to act. It's just like we read in, in Psalm 37, verse 5, commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will act. Verse 5, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> Could you imagine what that was like for those four guys on the top of the roof, having torn off the roof to let their, son, their friend down on this mat, probably by some kind of rope system, as these get lowered further and further down, hoping that Jesus will do something, trusting that Jesus is going to act, that he is going to do something, believing it so, so much Jesus looks up and sees their faith. But when he says, your sins are forgiven, could you imagine what they were thinking? It's his legs. <laughs> no concept that Jesus would go there. But you realize what Jesus is doing is doing what he does with you and me. He's meeting him at the point of his greatest need because he delights to do that with us. Oh, Jesus was going to take care of the paralysis as well. But he was going to go and do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond what we ask or imagine. You see, as you take this step of faith, you're getting ready to take. As God leads you, to a place to replant and as you trust him as you do he'll do exceedingly abundantly more than you ask or imagine because that's who he is they expected Jesus to act so do you do you have a passion for bringing people to the presence of Christ do you care enough to act do you see it as life and death 
Are we willing to challenge expectations and the conventions of men in order to push through to get people into his presence? And do we trust that he's going to do something when we do?